the larger paintings, and I think there'll probably be two or three that that make their way up to West Chicago, they all sort of incorporate the landscape. Uh, and they're all byproducts of my time in Wyoming. Some of it started back in, you know, 2021 when I was at Gentel and 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 working all the way up till till now. And so they're influenced too by my recent trip. I'm looking at one right now in the studio as I'm talking to you and I'm I'm trying to count how many landscapes are in the actual painting. And it's like one landscape, another landscape, maybe another. So two or three different landscapes in one painting and you may or may not get it at first glance. They're sort of hidden, they're they're sort of uh, camouflaged in there. Um, I'm still using the vocabulary that was sort of rooted in uh, uh, dazzle camouflage, so stripes and, and dots and that type of thing. But there's way more intentionality in, in terms of colors, you know, referencing skies, referencing all of that kind of stuff. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 296th episode, I'm excited to be joined by Mark Mitchell, who spoke with me all about his painting practice, his curatorial practice, and especially his solo exhibition, Pale Hay, that opens Saturday, October 14th from 6 to 9 p.m. right here at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. As usual, we're going to talk all about Mark's background, his artistic journey, how he became interested in painting, and of course, his experience as a curator. He's a curator at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville currently, and we talk a little about his experience curating shows for other institutions. Of course, if you want to learn more and see more, head to mmitchellpainting.net. You'll also want to be sure to follow him on Instagram. That's M-E-T-H-A-N-18. If you're new to Studio Break, we're a podcast where we feature all these different artists that come on, they discuss their work, they share their backgrounds. In the last year, we opened a gallery out in West Chicago, so we've been featuring shows, super exciting stuff. If you want to check out any of that, go to studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes. They're great for studio listening and thinking, so definitely check them out. We've featured tons of great artists, so be sure to follow in social media. So like our Facebook page, you can find us on Twitter slash X at Studio Break, and of course, best place to find us on instagram at studio underscore break another easy way to stay up to date is to subscribe to our newsletter on studiobreak.com we highlight recent podcasts upcoming art shows at our gallery in west chicago and of course competitions opportunities for artists to share their work to be part of the podcast and of course to be curated into a show I'm excited to note that our 2023 Studio Break Pro competition is now open. Our juror this year is Jeff Stevenson, who is a curator and gallery director at Governor State University. He's also a mixed media artist, and he'll be selecting five artists to appear on the podcast, as well as artists for solo exhibitions, group exhibitions. If you want to find out how to apply, head on over to studiobreak.com. There'll be some information there. The application process is super easy. You submit a small fee. You send an email off with your information, links to your portfolio and website, and you are done. So if you're interested or you know other artists, please share this opportunity and get those apps in today. For those catching it in time, we do have a closing for Noah Kashiani's show, built similarly, Saturday, October 7th from 5 to 8, so you can come on out, or you can listen to our recent podcast, episode 294. All right, and with announcements all wrapped up, let's dive right into this interview with Mark Mitchell. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Mark Mitchell, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, you know, thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, we're going to be talking a bit about your solo exhibition that's coming up at Studio Break Gallery, October 14th, 6 to 9 p.m. Definitely want people to come out and, and see these, you know, new paintings that you've been working on. And we'll dissect and talk about those. You know, you're a very mysterious individual. So are you an East Coaster just because I see Boston University is in your history or? I, I grew up in Florida. Okay. The the Tampa area. I went to the University of Tampa. I actually have a degree in finance, the studio minor. And so, you know, I, I finished up there, worked for a bit, uh, and then decided I wanted to go back to school for for visual arts for to get my MFA. And so I ended up in Boston, stayed there for about uh, I guess my almost 10 years, and then went down to Georgia, taught and ran a gallery down in Georgia, and then now I'm in, in Arkansas. So, you know, predominantly on the East Coast, but not a New Englander. I was a, a transplant for a, a little while. And th- I'm in the flyover zone, I guess is what they, they would say. Sure. <laughs> well, so did you do a lot of artwork when you were younger then? You just didn't know that you wanted to kind of pursue it? Or was it something that came later? I mean, again, everybody's story is so weirdly different, but similar. And So my mom is a, a school teacher, was a school teacher. She's retired. And my dad was sort of a, like a business guy, like management. So there was really no art. You know, we, I never grew up going to museums or going to, to galleries or anything of that nature. But my mom, you know, was, was very supportive of just like a wide curriculum in school. So I think that played a big part in it. So I, you know, I was always able to sort of make whatever it was, whether it was on, you know, as a kid putting together performances, just like most people in the living room with your friends or something. But I would say that the biggest influence was my step-grandfather. He was an endodontist by trade. I think that's what it is. Root canals and stuff, endodontist. He had a studio in the back of his house. You know, whenever I'd go to visit my grandmother and him, you know, I would always sort of stay back there. And he always had plenty of art supplies. And so I would, I would just sort of get lost in making drawings and, and he would come in and we would sort of draw or paint together. And, you know, I had a great respect for, for that, you know, for that, that time with him. And then also what he was trying to do. And, you know, he was definitely a Sunday painter, but it gave me an insight that, you know, people do this, you know, people that I know do this. And uh, while it wasn't his profession, it still sort of gave at least to me, validity to, to that, that act of making. So it was nice. And that's, I think, probably what you know, initially hooked me. Uh, <laughs> and were there other experiences that came before that? I know you said that you didn't kind of maybe grow up in an art household. Mm-hmm. You know, were you taking classes like throughout like grade school, high school that kind of led into that? I mean, I would take the, the, the usual classes, right? You know, like the, the art class that was for elementary school or middle school or something right. like that. But, but no outside classes, um, you know, no after school programs in that sense. You know, my, my parents, you know, as much as they weren't necessarily taking me to museums, we had art in the house, you know, and it felt very important uh, to them to have art in the house. A lot of artwork that was originals or, or prints and not like a poster print, but like a, a an intaglio print or a lithography print or something, you know? So, you know, I knew that it was a thing, um, but it was never really uh, like a, an educational component. It was just stuff that was around and sort of maybe got into my, my mind and my soul or something through osmosis. Yeah. 
So you're sitting down with like an academic advisor and they're just like, hey, you can take some electives, you know, and you're like, hey, I heard about painting. That could be fun. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and again, like some of the students here know this, but I went to college on a golf scholarship. I had no, yeah, no plans to ever, you know, make art or anything. <laughs> You know, I grew up in Florida and, and, you know, I would play golf at the time with, with people who were like on TV on tour. So like, there was a, a, an element of, of my mind that was just like, that's going to be my life is I'm just going to play golf. You know, and at some point during college, I realized I didn't want to play golf. You know, I remember at one point the NCA makes you declare a major mm-hmm. and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was playing at one of these fancy places. And, you know, I looked around and, and it was maybe like a Tuesday or a Wednesday afternoon, you know, and I'm like, I, I want to do whatever these people are doing because they can afford to, to pay the, the price to be here. We're, we're out here for free, you know? Um, and most of them were bankers, lawyers, accountants, you know, uh, financial people. And so I signed up for a, a marketing class, a management class, an accounting class, and a finance class. And I said to myself, Whichever class, the time seems to move the fastest is what I'm going to declare as my major. And it happened to be finance. Um, so, yeah, you know, there was really no plan. It just uh, art kind of came in the side door and sort of it was it was like squatting in my life for a little while. And then eventually, you know, I, I realized that, you know, I wanted to pursue it. And so that's when I uh, sort of made some some life choices and. Well, it's interesting because again, you know, so many artists now obviously are juggling all these different hats and, you know, the idea of having that background seems like a total plus to have that as a background. Was it then something that as you kind of pursued that, you know, that studio minor that you kind of got your feet wet in anticipation then something that kind of triggered you to go like, oh, you know, this could be something. Yeah. You know, I think my, my undergraduate degree, it was a, a different environment. I want to say it was kind of like the Montessori of art schools where, you know, it was kind of about communication and we would have classes that were, you know, not necessarily rooted in hard skills, you know, but rooted in um, thinking and ideation and, and talking through histories. And, and, and it was really something that it took me a while to recognize that they were teaching me sort of what it was like to live the life of an artist, not necessarily all of the hard skills to be able to draw. And we did get some of those, you know, uh, it wasn't like you went to figure drawing class and you never drew the figure or something like that. But like, I just wasn't aware of it at the time. It took me a few years to, to be able to look back and say, oh, that was that experience. But what I did realize was that I really loved those conversations. I loved the fact that we could talk about the history of painting and connect it to so many other things that would be occurring in popular culture at that time. You know, I love the fact that we could go and grab beers, mm-hmm. at, you know, on a Thursday afternoon or evening or something like that. And you could spend two or three hours arguing over whether this artist was good or bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and why, and, and, and people could agree to disagree, you know, um, like that was something that was vastly different than like the finance or the business classes I was taking. I had a certain unquenchable thirst for having those conversations and for wanting to look at more art and and open the next door to see what was behind it and like try to chew on it. And and nothing to to this point has has 
fulfilled me like painting or or that kind of approach to art. Was there something that took you to Boston in particular, like you visited or something and you're like, this is awesome. Or it's just so weird how you find out about graduate programs, right? That's a great question. Yeah. I, I you know, to be honest, no, I, I never visited Boston, nor did I visit Boston University before I applied, nor did <laughs> I visit before I accepted the program, my admission to the program. But I will say that BU, I'm grateful for a a woman named Stacy Resende. She works for the the Golden Company now, Paint, you know, Williamsburg Golden. She went to Boston University and she went to my same undergrad. And she came back, um, I want to say a few years after she she graduated from BU, getting her MFA. And she was teaching as an instructor or an adjunct at the time at my undergrad. It was really her who who helped um, me recognize that BU would be a, a very fruitful place. And I could see it through her. The The college that I went to, the University of Tampa, we had a program called Studio F, which is where they would invite artists, nationally, internationally acclaimed artists um, to come and make prints. Um, and it started off as like a lithography studio. And I think when I was there, it was silkscreen. But at some point, you know, John Walker, was a visitor, you know, and he um, got to sort of spend, I want to say it was about two weeks at on campus meeting with students and, and the rule or the, the, the sort of one requirement that the university has for Studio F was that the studio door always needed to be open and accessible for students. So they could come in, they could ask questions, they could, could watch for a little bit, et cetera. So I think over the, the course of his visit, you know, he, he got to know some of the students and he got to understand the program and, and what was special about the program and also maybe what we were lacking, you know, so like there was no color theory class at mm-hmm. my undergraduate, you know, uh, mm-hmm. program. Um, so, so I think there was a, a history of, of, of students going from our program to, to BU across the board, you know, in 10 years we had, you know, eight or 10 people go to major MFA programs across the country. So there was something magical happening at that place, but it, it isn't because we were just awesome. It was because, you know, there was some context. So yeah, I got, I got really lucky. I would imagine kind of being in that environment then in, in Boston and around all these artists and folks that are like, okay, I'm going to button down and get serious about this. I'm assuming that was pretty awesome to just have access to, you know, your studio all the time, all these folks working as a golfer, you're competitive. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it, it was awesome. It was a, a sort of a dream. It was a, it was a, a, a strange magical time that I look back at with some nostalgia that it was before we had, you know, cell phones that could do everything. You know, I used to love to wander the, the stacks in, in the library. School of Visual Art had a library mm-hmm. at BU which was great. They had amazing collection, you know, but the main library had, you know, stacks and stacks of books. And that was my first experience of, of, of really just being fully immersed in, in art and, and painting and the, the sort of appreciation for a history of painting, the act of painting, the talk of painting. It was lovely. I, I kind of miss it. You know, I'm thinking about like our library now and it's like, you like reserve a book online and then like some van will like Mm -hmm. bring it to you or deliver it to like your campus mailbox or something, you know? 
but and I don't know that we intentionally meant to feel old, but I mean, you know, I remember those experiences where you go looking for that one book that you think is going to be the book, and then there's ten books right next to it, you know, and you start finding out about different artists and and things like that, and you know, you just become aware of this this stuff in an entirely different way than you know scrolling through Instagram, you know, something that's been like configured by an algorithm to determine you know, more or less something of what you see, you know? So again, who knows how those habits work, but were there, were there artists and, and folks that started kind of getting you engaged in terms of, you know, thinking about what you could make? Cause that's something that we haven't talked about. I'm assuming at this time, you know, you're interested in painting and, but we have no idea if you're, you know, painting portraits or is it always been kind of like abstract kind of process based stuff that you'd been interested in? Yeah, I mean, especially getting into graduate school, you know, uh, my undergraduate program was, was really pushing abstraction, pushing uh, process-based work, you know, a lot more conceptual than sort of observational. And so, I mean, that's what got me in the door. And then when I got to BU, there was a shift where, you know, I needed to to learn. I think one of the faculty told me at one point during a crit that I needed to do my homework and I, I needed to figure out what that was, you know? And so I, I had to do that. And, and so at, at some point, maybe halfway through my first year, it was a two-year program, three quarters of the way through, I, uh, I started making observational work. I would, I would work from a still life in the morning. And then I, I gave myself permission to, to sort of do whatever I wanted to in the afternoon. And that's sort of where it started and then you know it kind of carried over into my my second year where i was making paintings that were done from observation but they were abstracted to the point where you may get the sense of an interior space and an exterior space windows different types of light you know uh, a light quality across the the painting um if if there were objects whether it was things inside the room, or if it was buildings outside or architecture outside, they were being reduced to simple shapes and, and forms and color and that type of thing. Yeah, it was it was a shift uh, in grad school. And, and um, it, 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 in my opinion, it really helped me. It, it, it gave me a more robust foundation to, to really talk about what it was that I, I did and why I did it, you know, where I didn't have that vocabulary earlier on going into to graduate school. So yeah, it was, it was strange. I also went from being a very sort of expressionistic painter, you know, lots of brush marks, thick paint, mm -hmm. and probably, you know, could be described as like messy and goopy and, and, and maybe not as considered to, to painting very precisely hard edge, you know, a lot of mixing of color and getting very specific color relationships correct you know, and I was painting my environment. I was painting the stuff around me, the, the Victorian houses that I, I walked by to get to campus, the view of, you know, the Photonics building and Fenway Park with the, the Mass Pike kind of intersecting the two, you know, uh, the BU Bridge and the Mugar Library and, and uh, the, the Arts and Sciences building, you know, so all of those things were just outside of my window. So that became my, the refrigerator stocked with those kind of images and each day I just decided, okay, what am I going to make? Yeah. And, and you kind of described too, you know, just the, the conversational aspect kind of getting into all these different methods and ways of working. Were there any kind of like artists that stand out that kind of helped guide you in terms of the painting side of it? I don't know why 
Al Held just jumps into my head for some reason. I don't know if that's somebody that you looked at, but who are some of the the artists that you started looking at in terms of maybe the way that you could see your kind of abstract side of things or that maybe that afternoon painter that's taking all these liberties and chances, you know, I think that's a great method by the way, too. Like always fun to have something that you kind of feel like you're, you know, is that series and then maybe something that you can kind of give yourself that permission to kind of just roll the dice a little bit, you know? I had a Matisse book and I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Matisse, a retrospective, maybe from like the MoMA that mm-hmm. I think was always on my, my studio desk. I don't think it ever left. Another one was Diebenkorn, you know, and maybe that was this idea of um, observation and abstraction, interior, exterior. I think that probably made a a big impact on me. Another person was Robert Motherwell. I I loved Motherwell. I still love Motherwell. Uh, I I told somebody the other day, I think a graduate student or undergrad, that I would cut off my right arm to paint an elegy. You know, I just, (laughs) it's not me. I can't do it. I tried, you know, in grad school, and it went horribly wrong. Um, and then the last one, which was a bit maybe more surprising, was Bryce Martin. You know, I had a, a really old book. I think it was like a Klaus, Klaus Curtin or something like that. He, he did a book. And it was one that you were talking about, like walking through the library and stumbled across it, you know, and it just rocked my world. I know that Bryce Martin just passed and, he, and it was Strange, I didn't realize this, but he, he was a, a BU alum, went to undergrad at, at Boston University. So there was this hmm. uh, history there too. But um, I, I think I first got really enamored with his collages, the ones where he was looking at sort of the shapes of, of famous artworks or famous sort of architectural buildings, maybe like the Pantheon or uh, some of the columns uh, and, and sort of blocking it out and, and putting um, fields of color in there and then i really was interested in his early sort of wax paintings the uh, the full sort of fields of color a big a big rectangle with maybe an inch or two down at the bottom where it was sort of showing the process of this like layering of of pigment and and wax i think partly too I, i made a pilgrimage to see some of those paintings and another thing that really captivated me about those was the fact that I couldn't quite articulate the color in those paintings. Mm-hmm. They could be red or they could be greenish, but like I couldn't quite put my thumb on exactly what it was. It gave me a new bar. Like, can I mix a color that, mm-hmm. that can't be described, you know, or can't be described easily? And so, and then he also started to talk about things in a, a new way. Like I'm thinking about a, a painting, I think it's in Houston um, called like the seasons and they're like four panels and they're all these different colors. So then I started to think about like, okay, what can a, an abstract painting convey? You know, um, can it convey a, a time of year, a certain uh, temperature, all of those types of things. And I think between those four artists, like that, that really, yeah, that, that explains a lot of my, my graduate you know, education, I guess. Yeah. I would imagine to kind of produce your, your thesis and, you know, you're dedicating that, you know, final year all to that kind of production. Maybe, maybe talk a little about that work or describe it a little bit as we kind of, you know, move forward. For BU at that time, I was making pretty small paintings. You know, I would say that the bulk of my paintings, you know, were under three or four feet, you know, when a lot of my classmates were making, you know, six foot tall, seven foot tall paintings, you know, or they were long sort of horizon, like a landscape 
orientation where, you know, it may be five feet tall, but six or seven feet wide. And so while I was approaching my, you know, sort of thesis semester, that last semester, I got really scared that like, I wouldn't be able to fill my space. You know, I didn't have enough, like, you know, real estate or square footage, you know, paintings to actually fill it. So I, I started to make a couple bigger paintings, you know, and they were maybe six foot by four foot. Uh, by this point, I was, I was really making hard edge abstraction that was rooted in interior spaces with windows, but the, the colors, the hues that I would choose, the intensity, they, everything was keyed up. So I was looking for color interactions that would, would flip spaces, would also create a buzz in your eye, you know, maybe were hard to look at, you know, and I think that those are some things that still continue on in my work now. Um, and so they, but that's where they first sort of took hold. Um, I also think about the idea of the, the fine line between representation and abstraction and being able to push representation all the way to the edge of abstraction or push abstraction all the way to the edge of representation. I feel like that's something that I've, that originated in, in grad school, shaped that last sort of body of work and then continued to push push into my, my, my process or my practice, you know, making work after grad school. And, and even to this day, I will also add one other artist that was really influential. We went to um, London our first year in, in grad school. And there was a Ewan Uglo exhibition up. That was my first time encountering his work. And it just, it floored me. It was something completely different than what I was making in the studio at the time. But I had such a, an appreciation for someone who was looking so hard at something, but using it as sort of an infrastructure to make other painting choices. And I really liked that. So I got interested in, in like, not so much the way that Hugo painted the figure, which was, was quite delightful, but how he painted the backgrounds. Or if I covered up all of the backgrounds and facial features, how he may have painted like one leg or one arm and, and the color relationships and all of that kind of stuff. Um, there was also a painting that he did that I want to say it was a figure that was laying on the ground and maybe it was like Lake Como or something. And then there was this big field of turquoise that kind of ran through the middle of the painting. And at the very top, there was a very thin line of these sort of uh, squares or rectangles of color. And, you know, what it really was, was a, a figure laying on the edge of this lake and that was the, the city or the town or the buildings on the other side of the lake. And, and that was a, like a, a pretty in, informative painting for me that like you can, you can structure paintings in many different ways and, and include information in, in different ways. So I could, I could hint at something and not necessarily always have to, to, to paint it. So that was good. I think my, our second year or my second year, we went to Spain and the painting that I always talk about that shifted my thinking and it's still like it, it's one of my favorite paintings is a, a painting um, by I, i'm gonna mispronounce it it's van der weiden roger right roger van der weiden it's like uh, they're taking christ off of the, the cross at the time it was in a gallery that was it's at the prado but it was it was maybe one gallery over from the uh, velasquez painting but it was the first time that a painting ever moved into the space so instead of, you know, people always talk about like paintings being a, a window or a wall, this one was like 3D, like the, the figure was like falling into the actual space that I occupied, um, not moving back. And 
gosh, I, I've, I've been chasing that for 20 years now. And I, I still don't know if I've figured out how to, to, to make a painting fall into the, mm -hmm. the, the viewer, but that's, that's something that I would love to do. And I, I, I try to do it all the time, sometimes with more success. But. <laughs> well, so, so what happened afterwards? I mean, again, I know there's always like elaborate plans in your head of, you know, what's going to happen, but I think you talked earlier about going uh, to Georgia and then kind of getting involved in curation. Is that kind of what came next? When I was in grad school, uh, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was so naive and so unprepared. I, I didn't really have a plan. I, I got very lucky that I had an interview, uh, which now in retrospect, I think about the answers that I gave. I'm like, oh man, I was, I was such an idiot. Mm. But uh, I had an interview with Washington University in St. Louis. And my guess is that came through somebody at BU, some, some faculty that knew somebody and they needed somebody last minute. I didn't get that job. And so I spent a good amount of time trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I ended up getting a job at the Gardner Museum, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And it was a, kind of a, a job that was not curation and it wasn't like a security guard, but it was more of like an admin job where, you know, I was always working with visitor services, with curatorial, with education, with public programs. And it was for a show that they did where they used the top floor of the museum, which was you know, previously her residence and it was offices, but um, they needed to use it for the show. So they, they, they had never done it before. So they, they had to figure out how it was going to work and all of that. And so I did that for maybe a year or two. And that was really great because I got to, to sort of see behind the curtain of how a museum works. And, and the operations and all of the things that go into to a, an institution, a museum. And it was a small museum, so it didn't feel as overwhelming as, you know, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, which was like, you know, right mm -hmm. next door. I worked as a GA, the BU Art Gallery. I worked for a gentleman named John Stomberg, uh, who now I think is at the Hood Museum, Dartmouth, um, and a, a guy named Chris Newth, who was at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston for many years, now is at Princeton. Art Museum. And then I worked for a woman named Stacy McCarroll Cutshaw. And I actually ran into Stacy one day as I was going to the Gardner Museum. And she said, Hey, you know, uh, the assistant director at the time is leaving. Would you be interested in, in, in you know, coming and, and working at the, the, the BU Art Gallery? Um, I'm looking for somebody who can handle and oversee the staff, do all of the, the prep work for the exhibitions, hang the shows, et cetera but somebody who can run the books. So it's like, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. And, you know, I had mixed feelings about going back to BU and, and, and working there. But ultimately, I decided that that was a, the thing that I wanted to do. So I went back to BU and started as the assistant director and sort of got my foot uh, in the door there and then got my, my toes wet, you know, um, watching her and other people curate shows and do some shows. And then at some point she was commuting. She was from LA and she, she was flying back and forth. She ended up leaving and it was right around the same time as the 2008 market crash. And so BU asked me if I would, you know, be an interim director. And I said, no. Um, and they said, you know, we really need somebody, you know, this the market crash is happening. We can't hire, you know, and finally I said, okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do it. And I said, but I'll only do it for one year. One year turned to two years, two years turned to three years, that type of thing. And so I, I, I was running shows. I was, you know, organizing shows for BU, uh, working with great institutions, you know, museums, working with big time galleries and artists and doing catalogs. So that was where I 
I learned the most. I, I honed my skills. And then at some point, you know, I was going back and forth to Florida. I wanted to change. I needed to change. And so I got a, a, a job in Georgia. I was at a school called Georgia Southern University. It's just outside of Savannah. Um, so they were doing cluster hires. So they were making a hard push. But at some point, the, the board of regents in Georgia said, there's no movement. And so, and then the dean who hired us, um, all he left. And so a lot of the promises, a lot of the stuff that was supposed to happen didn't, didn't work out. And, you know, at the same time, the stuff that I was dealing with, the family stuff in Florida, uh, where I needed to be closer, sort of ended. Um, and so I was able to look again, but I knew that I didn't want to go back to a big city. I, I had no interest in going to New York or to, to Boston. Uh, so I started to look at, so what I would think of as like mid-tier cities. So I, I had like a job offer for a place, you know, around Nashville. I had one for a place around Buffalo, New York. I had one from around Detroit. And then I on a whim, applied to the University of Arkansas. And I applied because I knew uh, Stephanie Pierce. I knew of her work from Alpha Gallery in Boston, and she went to undergrad there. Um, I also knew of Sam King, who uh, started a, a blog that also shows our age, right? Like we're talking about old blogs, <laughs> Midwest Capacity. So I would read that often. And, and, and we all just had common friends. And so I was like, if these people are, are there, there must be something happening at, at that school. So why not apply? And I did. And they brought me out an interview and a visit. And it was not what I expected. I, I believed in what they were trying to build here. And so that's sort of how I ended up here. But it, that was a very long way of saying that, you know, I got very lucky that I had uh, the background that I did, which was both art and business, because that got my foot in the Gardner Museum and at BU. And that's where I sort of cut my teeth and learned how to do everything else and everything snowballed from there. I would imagine then you're, you know, trying your best to fit in, you know, time to make work while you're, you know, putting on all these exhibitions, I'm sure writing grants and things like that. But how did that kind of evolve? You know, your website, again, I hope that people uh, check it out. It's um, mmitchellpainting.net. You can see big chunks of work there. Obviously the more current work as well as this, you know, huge kind of portfolio of a series of different abstractions. And I would imagine then there's just a lot of processes and, and, and trial and error, but maybe, you know, start us off a little bit. Are you someone that kind of, you know, formulates things in, in notebooks and sketches? Are you somebody that likes to kind of just start working with maybe some visual ideas and then kind of building off of that? Are you doing 20 paintings, 50 paintings at a time? I know <laughs> Five questions there, but well, you know, uh, I'm somebody who who keeps a sketchbook, and I, I tend to write a lot in the sketchbook, and I do make sketches. That was something that I started at, at BU, where I make a lot of like line sketches. You know, nothing overly complicated. I would always draw from my paintings, like in process. I start to think about grad school and then post grad school when I'm working. You know, we're talking about working at BU. I had a studio in a neighborhood called Fort Point. I don't know if I ever really told a lot of people that I worked with at BU or, you know, some of the gallerists in Boston or other sort of institutions, galleries, et cetera, that I was a painter. You know, I don't think that many people knew. Um, some did, but I don't think a, a ton. And to be quite honest, I, I, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. It wasn't, for me at least, it wasn't a smooth transition from grad school. I just kept making the same work. It went through a few different iterations. But I will say that, you know, right before I was leaving Boston, I had a big show at my alma mater. Um, and that was something that they did, you know, for almost all of us who, who, 
who went on to grad school a few years after they would they would give you a show and usually it wasn't a solo show it was like a group show to me it felt really important to have a really cohesive body of work and for me it was also important to have because the space was big uh, and I had to compete with two sculptors in terms of just audience and attention for for looking some bigger work uh, and so it was also at a time where uh, I had two family members uh, my my grandfather on my mom's side and my grandmother on my dad's side who were both very ill and they were both sort of hospice at that time you know home health care type stuff and uh, and one of them happened to pass away um, while I was sort of making this this show and so I made a bunch of paintings for my grandmother and she was Jewish I would identify culturally as Jewish. You know, I don't go to temple. I, I don't practice. I, I didn't really know much about the mourning process and, and the sort of idea of death within that the religion. So I, I did a lot of research and I made these paintings based on, on sort of Jewish structure of sitting Shiva and Avulad and all of these other things. So, you know, I think that's when it really sort of turned for me. You know, I, I figured out, okay, I can use abstraction to talk about these larger issues, these larger ideas. And I was also thinking a lot more about sculpture. So I was painting things that almost felt like sculptural objects in, in a space. So you could sense that, okay, there's air, there's light, there's you know form. This looks kind of like a pill, or this looks like a window or a mirror or a portal or something like that, you know? Um, and Unfortunately, I don't have any of those images on on my my website. But you know, I think that's when it really took hold. And then after that, I, I moved to Georgia and I started painting in in my home. I had like a little studio in the very back, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so, uh, some of the paintings that you see on the website that are uh, I think that's dated 2012 to 2016. There's a lot of small paintings. They're you know roughly uh, nine by twelve inches, and I spent roughly a year making nothing but one painting a week. And I, at the time, I thought of it as almost like a analog sketchbook, like a, a painting sketchbook, where I could look back and say, okay, well, here's fifty some paintings that I made, and if I line them all up in chronological order maybe I could make some sense of like what I was thinking about. And so at the time I was thinking a lot about appropriation, the Richard Prince case, you know, uh, from many years ago uh, with the, like the, the book uh, where he was using photographs of the Rastafari who were taken by another artist. And so um, that was all going on. So I was thinking about, okay, well, who owns shapes? You know, who owns Motherwell's Elegy? You know, mm -hmm. if I strip Motherwell's elegy from his painting and I like recreate it, but with, you know, zebra print, you know, faux leather that I got from like Michael's Arts and Crafts and I, I put glitter paper on it and all of this other stuff. Is it still an elegy or is it something else? Right. So, you know, I spent a, a good amount of time making a bunch of work like that. And so it led me to ask other questions, bigger questions in terms of my work, which started to move into nostalgia. Mm -hmm. I started to become really interested in like the failed avant-garde, both in terms of art and also in terms of culture. So I made a bunch of paintings that I think are still on my website that were based on, you know, like Miami hotels because my grandparents, they lived in uh, like Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. So I remember that kind of environment. I also remember like going with them to like 
their community pool and seeing like all of the uh, the old older people like adorned in jewelry, you know, and, and what it signified, you know, obviously they, there were symbols embedded in, in the, the, the jewelry and the, the watches, the bracelets, all of that kind of stuff. So I started making paintings that were dimensional, that had plastic jewelry hanging off of it. I was working a lot collaboratively with a colleague of mine, Derek Larson, and we realized that our interests intersected in, in, in a strange way at that time where I was coming at popular culture and trying to make paintings, like analog paintings that felt digital. And he was trying to make digital work that felt like painting. And so uh, we decided that that would be a really fruitful thing to sort of work through. And so for, gosh, probably two or three years, we, we, made, we made work at various venues institutions you know uh, we showed at like wisconsin madison we showed some work at valdosta state i remember we showed some work in pennsylvania we showed some stuff at green gallery which was in providence you know um you know that was you know sort of the work that i was making then and then i came to arkansas and i didn't know what i wanted to make but I, I shared a studio with a couple people and I used to paint my own patterns and a lot of work. And at some point I found out, and I can't remember exactly where, about Dazzle Camouflage. In World War I, uh, the German U-boats were sinking the British battleships. Um, and so there was a guy who was a reservist, but he was a, an artist. He came up with this idea, this plan to paint their battleships with these sort of very in, intense geometric patterns. Um, because at the time, the German U-boats would have to look through the telescope and do everything manually to set the torpedo uh, stuff. So it was less about camouflage in terms of blending into the sky or into the water, but it was more about spatial confusion. So if they couldn't figure out which direction they were going or exactly how far away they were, the torpedoes wouldn't, wouldn't work. And so I like that idea that it was a, an artistic solution to a military problem mm -hmm. that worked really well in World War I, but by World War II, when they tried to do it again, it was a horrible, miserable failure. The, the Germans found a, a, a workaround, and, and so I was making work about that, but then it led me to a bunch of other uh, things, which I started to think about, like, again, you know, our age, Xerox copiers, you know, like, we don't really need Xerox copiers anymore, but I remember as a kid, you know, using them to make copies of photographs or photograph photographs of, you know, all of those types of things. And what would happen? I remember the TVs, you know, the, the sort of rabbit ears and the, the knobs that you would have to turn. So you would get the static and you had to adjust everything just perfectly to get the picture to come in. And so all of those things started to make their way into my work, you know, so they were, they were references started to pop up when I, when I first got to Arkansas and they continued for quite a while. I've sort of moved to a certain degree away from it, but you know, they're still, they're still there. I, you know, the, the current work is, is really rooted in landscape, you know? And so in many ways, I, I, I kind of equate the landscape as, as a, a failed avant-garde. You know, I think about like the, the Hudson River School and all of these painters, you know, Bierstadt and others who painted these epic landscapes. And, and now it kind of seems, or at least for a little while, it seems sort of passe to paint the landscape, you know, old fashioned and stodgy and out of touch, you know, and I kind of like it. But, but then again, I, I also think like 
the landscape never went away. You know, it's, it's always been a thread. So, uh, but it becomes important. Well, it's, it's really interesting to see the differences between, you know, that kind of big chunk of work and then the, the more current chunk of work, you know, cause obviously there's things that carry over, you know, like color intensity certainly seems apparent or, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, in terms of, you know, printmaking aspects, you know, there's a lot of like rainbow relief kind of roll looking things or tons of pattern, you know, those motherwell aspects, you can really see in some of those older works in terms of, you know, just shapes laying over other shapes, but it's interesting to kind of think about how that gets translated. You know, you go from working, you know, that, you know, rectangle format to kind of breaking that, whereas like now everything is, you know, uh, varied and maybe, I guess, different shapes. And and maybe that's something that you can kind of elaborate on. But uh, it strikes me again, that there's still a lot of those aspects in there. They maybe just feel like they, they shift scale or, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about a transition going from more like expressive work to being tighter. It feels like that same thing, you know, happened again in terms of the the evolution of these works. Were there any kind of, you know, things that you're considering? Again, it's hard to condense, you know, what is it? Uh, six years of work, right? And in, in terms of things that you're thinking about, but like, you know, you notice that like a lot of them are more monochrome with some of, the, some of these pops of color, you know, maybe, maybe break down some of these, obviously maybe the first big thing you started kind of using more modular forms or kind of piecing these together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great place to start. So when I first moved here, I shared a studio with Sam King, who I mentioned earlier and uh, a painter, Natalie Brown. And there was another colleague of ours who now teaches at the university of Knoxville, Tennessee. His name is John Kelly and Sam and John are both musicians big time musicians. And and I love music, but I, I can not play instruments. I mean, I can play a tiny bit of piano and that's about it. Mm-hmm. But those two would always talk about music. They would, they would have gear around, you know, like there was always gear. And so I would say that at some point I started to, to sort of just see guitars around. I would hear them talking about it. I would see, you know, guitar wire pickups and all of these other amps around and mm-hmm. and I started to think about my childhood and uh, you know I'm a 45 year old guy kind of remember the late 70s to a certain degree but not really it's more of like the early 80s so I remember the 80s hair bands and metal bands with like the shaped guitars mm-hmm. and so that's where it came from like I started to think about oh well can I make like a shaped panel that sort of references like a guitar because like now it doesn't seem like they make like the flying V guitars or all of these like mm-hmm. sort of individualized shapes, you know, like, you know, it start to inlay plexiglass into those shapes. Um, you know, and I used to make all of them by hand without any kind of advanced technologies. Now I use a CNC router to, to mm-hmm. make all of the modular shapes. And, and the early part, it was all based on a very, elementary kind of structure which is okay each of them have to have like a a five inch by five inch corner that was at a right angle you know so they could kind of fit together in in very specific ways but i could also shift them if i needed to so certain parts of one painting could go to another painting if i I wanted it to 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 do that um that is sort of gone away Um, but that's where it started from you know another thing that i started to think about and you mentioned printmaking Almost all of the the sort of gradients that you see are are painted, hand-painted. But when I first started to make those shaped panels, there was a moment where I did 
use silkscreen. Um, and I should clarify that I didn't actually use it. I used to paint all of those patterns by hand, but I just couldn't do it. I didn't have as much time. I, I, I couldn't actually execute it. So what I did is I would hire grad students or undergrad students in printmaking to actually print, screen print this uh, manipulated, this Duchesne kind of moray print. And that would kind of create these moray effects on the, the larger panels, then I would paint on top of that. And so, you know, I think that came out of the idea of the Xerox machine mm -hmm. and this, this sort of fuzzy TV screen that that's kind of the flickering black and white of that, the TV screen. And then the stripes came out of the, the, the dazzle camouflage. I think that's where it first sort of came from. And, and again, I was trying to keep it pretty consistent on the early paintings where you know, if you look at the Dazzle ships, they often were just black and white. You know, sometimes you would have color, but most of them are black and white. And so I would add maybe one color in. And, and as time went by, you know, more and more color started to get introduced as I became less and less interested in the actual Dazzle camouflage. And I was trying to find, you know, sort of new new ideas to sort of layer onto the, the, the paintings. And so, you know, the modular aspect still remains. It's still here. It's it's still part of what I do. It was also a, just a simple need. I guess maybe a lot of people don't talk about that, but like shipping artworks expensive. So if I can take it apart and pack it into a smaller box and ship it, it's a lot more cost effective than trying to pack up six foot or a five foot by four foot painting and ship it that way. So, I, you know, I wish that I could say that all of it was just purely conceptual, but part of it was a means to an end how do i how do i send more work without like losing the bank on that one mm -hmm. it's funny how how you make connections so you talked about stripes um i had the great fortune of of going to banff to the banff center in 2018 and that was the first time that i really encountered a landscape that would create like a, a moment of me being awestruck and I didn't know how to deal with it, but I wanted to make work about it. So I ended up making a few paintings. And I think that was when I started to put the, what I would think of as like a ribbon shape. And they were sort of referencing topography of like moving up and down these mountains. And, and I would go for hikes and walks. That's where they started. I also made a suite of prints there. As any institution probably should, they, do, they shouldn't trust artists just to go out into the wilderness, you know, um, and I just read somewhere that Banff had a, a, a bear attack, killed two people. And when we first arrived for my session, uh, my residency, there was a bear attack, you know, and so I was like, oh my gosh, where am I, you know, but they would take artists out for hikes up mountains, the glaciers, et cetera, but they were always sort of guided. But because Banff has this history of a school, like we went out in a, a school bus, like an old yellow school bus. And, and so there was this roof that was perforated metal. And one day after a hike, you know, after struggling and struggling to try to figure out how I wanted to address the landscape, I was so tired that I just laid my head back and looked up and saw this perforated dots and they sort of moved. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's the, the element that I'm going to take from Banff and make this suite of prints. So I made some suite of prints that used old stills from a VHS recording of plants. And then that, that sort of dot pattern. And then these ribbons that sort of, you know, were kind of like stand-ins for mountains. And so that's kind of where the, the early paintings came from. But again, I was at Wyoming 
you know, a, a couple years back, I think it was 2021, I, I went to Gentel, got to spend a month there and I was floored. Like that I was riding my bike and uh, <laughs> looked over and all of a sudden there were all these stripes in the, the hills and the fields. And they were, they were basically mowing and, and rolling hay. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, here are more stripes that are like actually following the topography of the land. And they were in front of these majestic mountains. Um, and so, you know, I, I started to think more about the stripes not being a, a ribbon or a stand-in for a mountain, but like actually starting to reference the topography of a land and to talk about like, you know, that it, in the landscape, it's not just this, you know, awe-inspiring vista, but it's, it's recognizing that in order to feed the cows that the ranch is supposed to like be serving, they have to mow the grass to roll the hay. And this is the byproduct is this like this sort of weird drawing that they make into the landscape still sticking around. You know, the, the rainbow rolls are often based on sunsets or skies, you know, mm -hmm. very specific skies at certain times. You know, you talked a little bit about the shift from more painterly to a hard edge. I feel like now I'm also trying to shift back to mm -hmm. uh, a more painterly uh, delivery of, of imagery. So uh, some of the newer work is thick and goopy. There's parts of it that are very, what I would think of as, as less machined and more painterly. So yeah, it's, it's strange how everything kind of moves in, in cycles. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's so interesting to think about those experiences, having, having gone to Gentel and done that, you know, I think of how tiny you feel in a, a massive landscape like that. But the idea that you would start seeing these shapes, tons of mountains, you know, we're talking about like mountains everywhere, you know, so you go from, you know, like a, a city where there's all sorts of things popping off. It's like the cultural center, maybe, or one of them in, in Arkansas, but to go from an environment like that, that's, that's a bit, you know, smaller in comparison to say Boston, but then to go to a place where it's like the middle of nowhere, like it totally makes sense. You know, you start noticing the, how big the sky is, but you start kind of taking inventory of things differently. So I could easily see, you know, how that would feed the work. And it's interesting to see the different elements to it too. I don't know if it's intentional, but I believe some of the prints that I can identify, um, there's one that reminds me I think you were kind of describing like taking these stills and incorporating them. That reminds me of like 8-bit game references to like, I think, Super Mario Brothers or Contra. Yep. But, you know, to think about, you know, what we talked about recently, um, especially for the most current stuff, is that that landscape element is really kind of emerging. And again, just to, just to remind folks, you know, we're going to be showing these these paintings, these most recent works in Pale Hay, which opens October 14th. You know, at Studio Break Gallery in West Chicago. So come on out and see that from six to nine. We're going to have a glorious fire. There's a lot of landscape here, if you can believe it, too, because it is outside of, uh, you know, Chicago proper. But, you know, that that painting that pops off to me, you know, that that's on the the splash of the, this body of work. You know, you can kind of see the way that you start thinking about maybe like the plains of the Midwest even, or, you know, there's elements of sky that kind of get incorporated in there. So I could see that kind of return or that callback to maybe some of the works that, you know, are more painterly. So maybe talk to us a little bit about these most recent developments. Um, and I know we've been talking about them too, because, you know, new work is always a little unsettling, but maybe, maybe talk a little about the the works that are going to be in the show and how, how did you curate them as a curator? 
<laughs> uh, well, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, I think what I'm going to be showing the Studio Break Gallery for Pale Hay is going to be a suite of smaller paintings on paper that are mounted onto to panels. Uh, and for, for listeners, I, I, I was at U-Cross, which is just down the street from Gentel in, in Wyoming. Both of them are a little southeast of Sheridan, Wyoming. And I was there in August, the beginning of September. So I got to, to sort of go back and spend more time in this landscape. So I have a, a, a sort of grouping of those, those paintings that I did while I was in Wyoming. So some of them are more traditional landscapes. Some of them have been manipulated uh, in different ways. They reflect sort of the colors of, of the landscape, the skies, the, the mountains. And, and, and as you said, it's a unique landscape where you're sort of at the foothills of the, the Bighorn Mountains. And, and up until the, the Bighorn Mountains, you, you get this sort of rolling terrain that looks like they're tops of hats or something like that, where they're not big, big mountains, but they're still big enough, right? Mm -hmm. But there's no real trees on them. It used to be underwater. What you do see is a lot of sage bush, and you see some other sort of plant um, that are native to that area. They sort of dot the landscape with a specific family of colors, you know, like a pale sort of violet, kind of almost like a pea soup green, you know, um, there's some browns and ochres. And, and then this, like, as you mentioned, you realize just how big the sky is and how big the landscape is and how small you are. And the, the weather there is, is, is harsh. It's a, it's a hard place to live. It's a beautiful place, but um, the storms will roll in and the skies, you know, uh, sort of change on a, a dime and the clouds roll in in different ways. And so, you know, some of these perlic sketches, they sort of capture maybe one or two elements in each. And sometimes they stay more observational. Um, and sometimes they, they sort of move. The larger paintings, and I think there'll probably be two or three that, that make their way up to West Chicago, they all sort of incorporate the landscape. Uh, and they're all byproducts of my time in, in Wyoming. Some of it started back in, you know, 2021 when I was at Gentel and and, and working all the way up till till now. And so they're influenced too by my, my recent trip. I'm looking at one right now in the studio as I'm talking to you, and I'm, I'm trying to count how many landscapes are in the actual painting. And it's like one landscape, another landscape, maybe another. So two or three different landscapes in one painting, and you may or may not get it at first glance. They're sort of hidden. They're, they're sort of uh, camouflaged in there. Um, I'm still using the vocabulary vocabulary that were that was sort of rooted in uh, uh, dazzle camouflage so stripes and, and dots and that type of thing but there's way more intentionality in in terms of colors you know referencing skies referencing all of that kind of stuff there's a, a painting that has like a little pond in it right now mm -hmm. that's something that i've never done i've never actually painted like a pond but it, there's something different i never realized it you know i heard people talk about it but when i was in the landscape uh, in Wyoming a couple of years ago at Chantel, like I mentioned, I rode my bike. And part of it was I started doing that in the pandemic to, to try to get some exercise to get out of the house. And, and where I live here in Arkansas, we're in the sort of foothills of the Ozarks. So there's a lot of hills, but they're not mountains. And, but I never really ventured out. I never really left Fayetteville, Bentonville area. But when I, I rode my bike, I would start to ride 20, 30, 40 miles out into the 
the countryside, you know, on, on gravel roads and that type of thing. And so, you know, I had a different kind of appreciation for the terrain, for the landscape, I, you know, and, and when I was in Wyoming, you know, I, I talked a little bit about this in, in my proposal at Ucross was I could tell you how the temperature changed when you went up one street, you know, that you rode up 10 miles up to this little town called Story that's in the very foothills of the, the Bighorns. And I could say that, yep, you would feel it halfway up, you know, I'll make it up like Wyoming State Road 110, you know, like, and so it felt very special to have those experiences. And, and part of what I think about with my new paintings is how can I, how can I convey some of these experiences, but not necessarily use a traditional pictorial language that is just landscape in the way that you would think of landscape. So in, in many ways, it's like a synthesized version of a landscape. So, you know, we're talking about these current paintings, you know, something that we've maybe glossed over is, you know, like uh, what types of materials are you using? Are you sponsored uh, by, <laughs> by Golden now that you know somebody? But, you know, like, are you um, using like a lot of different material? Because, you know, that's that seems like something that's apparent, you know, in terms of some of the techniques. But maybe kind of break down some of the, the different ways that you're kind of working different materials and things like that for these recent ones. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I, I'm not sponsored by Golden. Uh, <laughs> I wish that I was, uh, you know, but I do use acrylic paint. Uh, I, I went to graduate school and did early my undergraduate painting, graduate painting, and then even for a few years afterward, before I went to Georgia, I painted with oil. So that was a shift. I'm starting to think more about, instead of it being a, a clean, hard edge, almost perfect machined mark, really letting my hand become visible in, in a lot of the work. Also thinking more about the history of the painting. So you can see what, what's happened, where things have shifted and changed. So the experience in person, these, these paintings are a lot different. You know, they, they have more of a physical experience where in a, a picture, digital image, they, they look kind of graphic or they look maybe more digital. And people ask me often, do I plan them out ahead of time? And the answer is no. Most of them are intuitive. You know, I, I come into them with very little plans and then I just start making work. I start to think about a few different ideas. So in, in the process, they shift big time, you know, and so you start to see that now before I would sand them and sort of try to make them a little bit more precise. But now I'm just letting them be. But yeah, so I do use a lot of mediums. And so, you know, whether it's matte mediums, gloss mediums, self-leveling, you know, other types of stuff. So that's become more of a, a prominent um, element of the paintings. And I'm starting to mix paint. You know, you hit it on it a little bit ago with the, uh, the black and white and maybe one color. Um, at some point after working in that vein for, gosh, a year or two, I got like a little worried. I was like, I don't know if I can mix paint anymore. I want to get back to mixing paint and, and, and not relying on just sort of one color. And so I've really gotten into paint mixing. I've got, gosh, probably hundreds of little jars. Uh, and it seems like I always order plastic jars with lids. And, uh, you know, I have all of these very colors, you know, gradients of colors, all of that kind of stuff. So I think that's another big thing. Um, just getting back into the, what the material of paint can do in terms of transparency, opacity, thickness, thinness, uh, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's been good. And, and I'm assuming then that you have like some sort of like giant pile of tape that's you know sticking out of a garbage can or something like that or a dumpster maybe i don't know yeah so you were right but i just emptied it yesterday 
is my like five gallon drum. I also kind of cleaned up my studio where usually you'll see more this kind of tape everywhere on the wall. It's really exciting to think about how all these things are coming together in a new way and especially to kind of be, you know, able to show it off, you know, th- through this exhibition. Um, you know, we were just saying just the nature of this, you know, we meet people and we see their work remotely. And I was just saying, sharing that, you know, Erica Behess was, you know, somebody that picked you for an exhibition. So it's nice to be able to to break that digital kind of experience to kind of see these in the flesh and, and exciting, especially to think that they're going to be this new kind of shift. And, you know, I'm sure it'll be awesome for for conversation. And, you know, hopefully we get a lot of great people coming out, throwing uh, curveballs your way and getting you excited about it even more. So, but yeah, um, you know, once again, Please join us uh, October 14th uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. You know, you can find all the information on on uh, studiobreak.com under our gallery page. And But just remind everybody, where, where are the best places to kind of follow you and, and what you're doing and, and to see some of the things that we've been talking about? Sure. So, uh, you know, my, my website is mmitchellpainting.net. You can follow me on Instagram at M as in Mary, E-T-H-A-N as in Nancy, 18. And so you could also follow me or find some stuff on UARC Painting Instagram. So it's at U-A-R-K Painting and at U-R-A-K Drawing, you know, and then they both have websites as well. Uh, so those would probably be the, the starting points. I think that you could then find work at other places, but those would be the, the, the ones that I would recommend. But yeah, I, I forgot to even acknowledge, like, thank you, Erica. You know, I'm so excited for her. Uh, you know, she obviously she runs the I Like Your Work podcast, which is fantastic. But yeah, her new uh, appointment at Chautauqua is super exciting for them and super exciting for her, you know. And uh, I agree. It's hard to convey, you know, my paintings... They're, they're different in person. And I know like a lot of painters say that, but you know, they, they reproduce digitally one way and then experience them in person a different way. So I hope people come out and see them. I would be, I would love to talk to people about them. Yeah. It'll be exciting to have all these. And again, as somebody that has a lot of experience uh, hanging stuff, uh, I'm expecting you to knock it out in 10 minutes or so. So hopefully we can do it. So we will, um, we will. <laughs> but thank you, David. I, I really appreciate the, the conversation. It was fun. I, I liked it. Yeah. Thanks so much to Mark for joining me. Once again, come on out Saturday, October 14th for the opening of Pale Hay. You get to meet Mark, sharing some great conversations, some food and festivities, a fire, and all sorts of great company. So come on out to Studio Break Gallery Saturday, October 14th in West Chicago from 6 to 9 p.m. You don't want to miss it. You can also check out his website, mmitchellpainting.net. And follow him on Instagram, that's M-E-T-H-A-N-18. It is an exciting time of year as we are accepting applications for our 2023 professional competition, juried this year by Jeff Stevenson, who is a painter, mixed media artist, and curator at Governor State University. He'll be selecting five artists to appear on the podcast, one artist for a solo exhibition, and a couple of small group exhibitions. Once again, super easy to apply. You submit a small fee, you email your portfolio, portfolio slash web address instagram and you are done it's really cool to see what happens with these competitions as mark and i alluded to erica b hess of i like your work podcast selected mark's work as part of our pro competition a few years ago and to get this solo exhibition she was recently appointed to director of chautauqua school of fine arts so super excited for her congrats we're big fans of i like your work as noted earlier, if you are a new listener, be sure to check out the podcast on studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes. Each of those break down the artist's background, share links to their website.
Bytes. And of course, they're great studio listening. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Of course, you can find us on Apple and Spotify is a great place because you can get that preview image as you're scrolling through. So be sure to subscribe there. And of course, leave those reviews if you like the podcast. It's a great way for other people to find out about the podcast. And again, you earn some karma points. Music for today's episode is by Golden Shadow. Golden Shadow includes myself, Ben Cohan, and Brett Beery. If you'd like to see some of Ben's paintings, head on over to Instagram at mbencohanstudio. If you'd like to hear some of the albums and music that Brett has been making, you can find him on Instagram as well, at Brett Beery. And we do have an EP out with six songs. It's on Bandcamp, Golden Shadow. Once again, you can find us on Instagram at Golden Shadow Band. If you want to see some of my paintings, you can, of course, head on over to davidlinway.com. You don't have to go too far as it's merged into Studio Break. You can also find me on social media at David Linway. And if you enjoyed this appearance by Mark on the podcast, please give him a shout out. Say hello, studio underscore break on Instagram, or just come on out and meet him. Once again, Saturday, October 14th from 6 to 9 p.m., Pale Hay opens in West Chicago. All the info is on studiobreak.com. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. We hope that your studio practice is crushing, that you're staying healthy. We'll talk to you real soon.